Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could never edit that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I'm all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? Hello, this is Mick Elliott, author of the Turners and Squidge Dibley books. Just before Christmas, I had an email in my inbox from Danny V, the creator of the Words and Nerds podcast, and she was inviting authors to interview authors that they admire for the summer series of the podcast. And I immediately thought of my good friend and an author I admire immensely, Oliver Pomervan. He is the brains behind such wonderful best-selling books as Tyrific, Tynamite, Con Nerd, Super Con Nerd, Natural Born Loser, Punchlines, The Other Christie, Don't Follow V, and his most recent book of short stories, Brain Freeze. I've been lucky enough to work with Oliver on a number of occasions, appearing at different events and festivals, and I always find him to be funny, charming, and just an all-round fantastic guy. Our conversation covered a wide variety of unexpected topics, not just about the writing process, but whether or not chocolate should be stored in the fridge or the cupboard, the importance of boredom, what to wear when you're doing a school appearance, and the special role that McDonald's Happy Meals have played in his development as a writer. But I started by asking Oliver about his personal philosophy when it comes to writing and what motivates him to write funny stories for kids. I think for me, it's to essentially sort of be the voice for the underdog, for, um, you know, the kids who feel a little bit weird or, or left out or, or left behind. So I always try to think of a scenario where um, you have someone who's out of place or out of water and they want to belong, they want to fit in, but... Um, yeah, sort of work it into um, a scenario where they're kind of forced to face their fear or overcome their own anxieties and sort of step out and, and, and be brave, essentially. So, yeah. We saw that theme in your book, Natural Born Loser, where your main character accidentally becomes the school captain. And it's definitely there in your latest book, too, Brain Freeze, a collection of 12 
deliciously wacky short stories. What drew you to write short stories? Yeah, so, you know, I've, um, over the years, have been very lucky to be featured in many anthologies, um, like Funny Bones, which you and I um, were a part of, because I was co-editing with um, Ken and Joe Temple, and you kindly um, submitted a really cool story, which was fun. And, you know, over the years, I actually kept some of those stories for myself because <laughs> I thought they were just a bit too good. Uh, but, you know, honestly, like as a kid, I grew up reading Paul Jennings short stories and I thought he was the master of the short story. Um, it, it's really so is. hard. Yeah, it's, it, it is a gift to write short stories that really um, get to the point, hook you in and leave you wanting more. And so um, over the years, I've been writing these short stories, thinking about, you know, a possible time for me to have a collection on my own. And when sort of the opportunity came, I just sort of leapt on it. I thought, yeah, I definitely want to um, have a short story collection out there. Because I find that, like, you know, a lot of kids out there who may not be big readers, uh, I find mm. that short stories is such a great sort of gateway into them reading something longer, but at the same time, sort of engaging them with something that that's punchy and something that isn't going to go on for a long time. I think it's really cool for a kid to pick up a book and go, okay, well, I can get through this short story because it's only a thousand words or um, 10 pages long. So you're, you're a room to read ambassador and it's lovely to hear you talk about that desire to get kids to read. And I, I had such a joyous time reading brain freeze with my own son. And one of the things I noticed is that there's such a variety of both of genres and, and, and styles within the collection of stories that you've, you've written. There's stories that are just out and out crazy and funny. And then, then there are others that really um, come from a place of in, incredible heart. And the one which particularly, um, just both of us you know just adored so much I mean we loved all of them but um is is the final story in the book which is called melted chocolate about a, a mm. kid in a, in a town where it's very very hot and remote trying to buy his mum a special present can you tell us a little bit about that story for anyone that might not have read it and also where you got the idea for the story melted chocolate funny enough like i've been i've been um, given many gifts um over the years and box chocolates <laughs> And I had no idea about this, but I, I, I had no idea that actually if you have more of the chocolates and you put them back in the fridge thinking that they'll, you know, um, go back to normal, it actually tastes different. And um, yes. my, my wife actually like blew this myth out of the water saying, yeah, that it does taste different. And lo and behold, it actually does. I did a couple of experiments to make sure that, um, you know, my wife was telling the truth, but it's true. Metal chocolates do change once they... They so you've undertaken some some actual tests on this because it's a very controversial topic here in my house, mm. um, especially after Christmas when the house is loaded with chocolates. Um, do they go in the cupboard? Do they go in the fridge? Especially when it's hot, your your your, your instinct is to put them into the fridge. But by doing that, it actually changes the the, um, the texture of the mm. chocolate, which is why when you go into like a chocolate store, it, the, the aircon is on full blast because you know whether it's 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 cold or hot, the the chocolates are. are, are are best when they're at, at room temperature of sorts. So yeah, so it got me thinking about um, you know this um, this place of what would happen for a kid who dearly would love to give his his mum a gift that she appreciates because she's a, a massive chocolate fan, uh, but wanting to make sure that they are in in pristine um, condition. Because the flip side of this story was that I was going to write a revenge story where this guy 
um, really hates this this other um, kid or this other person by giving them melted chocolates intentionally. <laughs> so actually, like you know, intentionally melting them, refreezing them, and then giving them back. It's it's almost like um, regifting a gift, but like ten times worse because they have no <laughs> idea. They they're buying to the chocolate like. Is this chocolate off? Is it out of date? And uh, no, no, it's actually been melted and then reformed. But I went for the other side because, um, you know, this story is set in a, in a small country town. And what I love about this story the most is that these characters um, tell um, and, you know, like you actually get to meet these characters again in my in my upcoming book, What About Tell, actually, which is really cool. So um, it was really nice idea to to be able to revisit some characters like you know um mm. in brain freeze you revisit like um characters from from tyrific and also from um don't follow me but this last one i wanted to have a, a kind of like a like a prelude into what's next for for me so that was pretty cool as well anytime um that i i, I read your books and I've, I've had so much fun you know going right back to tyrific and con nerd and the other christie is that they all come from a place where not only are you clearly trying to capture what Paul Jennings does so well, which is to entertain the audience, but is is a place of authenticity. The voice feels very, very authentic. You know, I, I grew up in, in Western Sydney, um, you know, at, at a school surrounded by kids of all different races, um, all different backgrounds. And it was just a norm. Like, you know, I think um, it's it's amazing for, for a kid who's in, in the playground, um, you know, hang out with, with friends. It's it's personality. It's 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 what they are and, and what they do. Sorry, um, it, it's what they are as a person more than mm. sort of their family background or, or, or where they've come from that actually makes them a friend or, or a rival or not a friend and, and so on. And so, um, I guess one of the points I, I, what I wanted to sort of make is that you know, um, this Asian Australian um, sort of growing up Asian Australian. You know, it, it might seem a bit strange from the outside, but um, having these sort of second, third generation migrants um, sort of having kids of their own now in, in Australia and they're having been here for such a long time, it's it really is just part of the norm in terms of like just, they just grow up in Australia per se. So I really wanted to sort of, um, you know, write about people's backgrounds, people's families, but do it in a way where it's just, oh yeah, oh, that person's just, you know, uh, Chinese or Vietnamese or um, mm. you know from the Philippines and oh yeah, that's cool and then we just sort of get on to the to, to the story um, and I think you know that's what I really love the, the most about Terrific is the fact that you know we have someone trying so hard to uh, you know to, to fit in and, and be Australian uh, but it's you know he doesn't want to be put into that box of oh his his parents are great Thai cooks. Um, he, he's the kid whose who's parents are great Thai chefs and even though that's kind of boxing someone by their heritage what he's thinking is actually being boxed in by what his family does and so you know it's this whole um, universal trait of embarrassing families that that I really wanted to sort of tap into and and it's the the background and, and the Thai heritage side that's more of sort of um, a side topic more, more to that. So, yeah. At the time that we're, we're recording this, it is, of course, just after Christmas. It is often a time when, when many of us go back to our childhood homes or revisit our, our family homes. Is that something that you've done over this Christmas? Yeah, look, I, I'm, I'm quite lucky that my parents, um, you know, basically live half an hour from me. So, um, didn't have to travel too far and, and really thankful that I was able to uh, spend Christmas time with them and also my wife's side as well. Um, you know, because my um, my parents never really celebrated Christmas, um, my childhood was, was either spent at home on Christmas Day, um, 
looking for something to eat because my parents would be so lazy and we would drive around Sydney looking for McDonald's that was open. Because back in my day, kids, um, you know, McDonald's open on Christmas Day was, was a rarity. So I remember we were so desperate, we had to go to the McDonald's close to the airport just so we could have something to eat. And, like, you know, and so my memories of Christmas Day was um, playing games all day because usually my parents would give me a game um, and I would play it all day and then feeling hungry and then going out at three or four in the afternoon looking for a McDonald's or KFC that that was open on Christmas Day. Please tell me that you you try to track down that original mascot McDonald's again <laughs> on Christmas. Yeah, look, you know, I think it's still there. Actually, I think it's um it's still there in it's it's bit it's a bit done up now, but the McDonald's is still there closest to the um, Sydney Airport because essentially when you really think about it, a lot of things were were closed on Christmas Day. That's the only thing mm. that, that that's open. Like you know, and it would be closest to the airport because people would be um, traveling back and forth. Um, the other thing that I would do on Christmas is I would be spending it in, in Thailand. So every second year, um, literally the day after school ended, my parents, uh, my family would travel back to Thailand to, to Bangkok and I would spend five weeks there over the school holidays hanging out with, with my cousins. And so Christmas Day um, in Thailand is, is really cool because they really go all out when it comes to Christmas, which, which sounds a little bit weird because it's 40 degrees there and it's really hot and humid, but when you go into like a shopping center, like it's all decked out in like, you know, holly and tinsel and like, you know, you've got like fake snow everywhere in, in the shopping center complex and uh, yeah, you like Christmas carols going off as well. So it's, it's pretty funny seeing um, Thailand, which is, you know, normally a, a Buddhist country really sort of, um, yeah, really celebrate Christmas in that it. sense. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, um, so it was pretty cool. I mean, the, I guess the main thing with Christmas is that, you know, it's a time um, to, to reflect and also a time to actually um, spend time with, with family. So, um, so in that case, whether it was Thailand or at, at home um, looking for McDonald's, uh, it, was, it, was, it was pretty cool to be able to spend time with family because for, for me as a kid, like, you know, it was a time where you couldn't really see your friends because they would normally have Christmas time with, with their families. Yes. And so there was this little period where you were really asked, you were really stuck with, with family. And if you had extended family, like cousins, you, were, you know, that was pretty lucky. But for me, um, you know, it was just my mom and dad, my sister, everyone else lived in Thailand or, or Laos. So um, I actually did look forward to those times where I was going to Thailand because I thought, oh, cool, at least I won't be too bored because I get to um, hang out with them. I risk sounding like, you know, someone saying, oh, these kids today, but um, seriously, these kids today <laughs> just have, have, have no idea of just what a vast wasteland that summer holiday period was mm. like in a, in a pre, you know, pre-internet, pre-tablets, pre-phones age. I certainly remember in primary school, you know, you would finish on that last day of school and it was fantastic. And then Christmas would be, you know, maybe a few days or maybe a week later. And then January just stretched out endlessly. And, and where I, I grew up out in the hills, which back then really was mostly paddocks and bushland. And um, there was really just no way to, to contact your friends. You know, no, none of them lived that close by. Um, you know, there was the family telephone, which was attached to the wall in the kitchen. And otherwise you were, you know, and you had a couple of TV channels, no, no, DVDs, no YouTube, no Netflix. Um, but I, I guess the upside of that was that it did mean that you had to uh, really embrace boredom and, in, you know, and, and create stories. I mean, how, how do you feel that your own upbringing influenced the way that you as a storyteller come up with stories? Oh, for sure. I think, I think boredom essentially is, is a gift. Like my, my high school teacher always said, you know, 
um, boredom doesn't really exist. Like, you know, if you are, if you do find yourself bored, you need to actually come up with something to, to do. And so uh, my sister and I would, would get our, our Happy Meal toys and we would role play um, adventures <laughs> with, with, you know, with like Chippendale and DuckTales Happy Meal toys. And I think that's where I developed my, my amateur um, mining skills of like pretending to be toys, pretending to be characters. Um, I also, you know, did, did stick figure comics. I, I, I wrote um, a fake games magazine where it, it, it featured games that I just sort of made up in my head and pretended to, to, that it was real. And so, you know, I wasn't really into tennis and, and cricket back then, so nothing was on TV. Um, it was 40 degrees and my, my brain would literally melt. Is that sort of sense of being a performer, is that something you developed in early age, that, that love of entertaining a live audience? Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, I, I was always a class clown at, at school. Like, I, I always said the um, the wrong thing at the right time or, or vice <laughs> versa. And, and, you know, getting in trouble with, with my teachers was more of, of a... Um, you know, just a, I call it like a side effect of being a class cat. I wasn't really a troublemaker per se. I just wanted to make my friends laugh and just make the class laugh. And so, yeah, I, I loved um, being able to think ad-lib on the spot, um, you know, deliver smart attic lines that I honestly couldn't have planted sort of. It just was all circumstantial. And I guess that's where they read of uh, my chops being wanting to be a stand comedian. Like, you know, I grew up on like Jamoan, um, Akmal, um, Jerry Seinfeld, um, you know, I even, I even snuck in, um, well, I mean, my my, uh, my high school friend actually had copies of, of Eddie Murphy's, um, you know, stand-up routines like Raw and Delirious, and even though yes. they're not really for kids, like the way he owned that stage, that, that was the kind of persona and presence that I wanted as well. It really is a wonderful thing in, in those live festival uh, appearances to be able to get that immediate feedback from an audience because it's hard as a writer because, as you know, we spend most of our time alone in a vacuum working on our stories. I'm not really sure whether they're going to land with an audience in terms of the words on the page. So it is wonderful to be able to see that immediate response. Um, what, what's some of the, the best feedback that you've had from some of those live sessions? or what's some of the best moments that you can remember from some of those live uh, sessions as an author out there in front of your audience? Having performed at the, um, the Sydney Rice Festival, mm. Sydney Town Hall, you know, like almost 2,000 kids crammed in. They're all pumped, they're all excited. You know, they've been handpicked to be part of um, this um, sort of um, day. And It's like a Taylor Swift concert, isn't it? Oh! It is so cool. And so I, I, I just lapped that up, you know, I, I, I ran into the audience, I, I gave high fives, doing like opera things. And even though it took me like, you know, seven minutes to, to eventually get back on stage out of breath, I was just hyped, you know, I treated it like it was, it was like a, a TED talk. And I think like the, 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 the beauty of, of these live performances is that like for a lot of kids, they think an author is just some old guy or old person, sorry, who just basically writes these stories or on a typewriter and then, you know, has a cup of tea and then a, a biscuit and, then, you know, goes to live in a <laughs> cottage. And so, like, you know, as soon as you blow the expectations that an author is actually someone who is, you know, basically like them, essentially, like, you know, a still big kid, of course, um, but just essentially a, a person. And once they, they latch onto that thought, um, you know, you could basically go, go anywhere. So, um, yeah, some of my best moments have been the ones where, you know, you have to win the crowd over. Like, you know, mm. it, it's, it's easy to talk about those big events, but I like the events where I'm confronted with a group of year 10 kids and they haven't read my books. They don't know 
they don't know why they're there. Um, sometimes you don't know why you're there as well. <laughs> so I'm like, what's going on? And then you have to win them over. And like, it's, that is so cool because those, those gigs are the ones where like, you don't know if it's going to be your best gig or your worst gig, but you don't know until 10 minutes into the talk. And you're like, it's either going to be a long 45 minutes or it's, it's going to go by pretty quick. So those are pretty cool. I also like the ones where, um, you know, it's, it's after lunch. You've got the 2 to 3 p.m. session. Yes. Energy's down. Energy's down. You feel the kids' heads on their desk or they're leaning oh. back. <laughs> they're sizing yeah. you up, looking at you, going, what's, what's this guy? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and so, yeah, so those are the ones where you have to lift because, um, you know, if you, you're going you're to give it 110% because um, if you don't and you go in there like a little bit uh, kind of thing, then they're going to give you like a bit of air as well. So That's right. I try to scan the room and I, I look for something that is a little bit, you know, like a, a little bit random or um, something that, that the school has, like whether it's like a, a, a weird mascot or they've got like a, um, a disco coming up. And so I might throw in a couple of jokes about like, you know, dancing and that kind of stuff. And so it, that, that stand-up comedian side of me kicks in and I start to scan the room and I start to try to make the, the presentation um, sort of ad-lib. So I guess, you know, that that's the illusion, isn't it? Because, you know, it is. in, in real life, we, we've done this talk hundreds of times and we always have jokes that, that we can bring out in times of need, like, you know, in case of an emergency, you know, crank out the, the rubber chicken or, you know, crank out this or crank out that uh, to get them. <laughs> It's so important to localize. It's it's like when a when a you know big music act you know will be performing and you know they'll always say the name of the town that they're in and everyone is like yeah Gold Coast where the <laughs> yeah Taylor Swift said Sydney oh my goodness she's speaking to me to she me. knows Sydney exists <laughs> now you you of course bring a massive amount of your own personal hobbies both into your writing and also into your into your uh, live appearances as well. Um, and again, that is featured in Brain Freeze. Um, and it also very much features in the wonderful appearances that you do in front of students and at schools and festivals. And, and for me, it seems from looking at your, your social media and knowing you that those top three would surely have to be, and this is of course, aside from writing amazing, funny stories, would have to be burgers, sneakers, and gaming. Am I fair to say, have I missed anything there? Um, no, that, that, that is correct. That is, um, and sometimes those three interchange depending on what kind of year it is. But I think in 2020, that's basically it. That's, yeah. So burgers, sneakers, and gaming in, in that order for 2020. So, yeah. And can I, can I ask you, Oliver Pomavan, because it seems to me when I open Instagram, as, as one does now and again, <laughs> almost every day, there'll be a post from you saying, check out my new sneakers, <laughs> which look like the sort of sneaker that you don't go and buy from a bargain bin. They look like the sort of lineup at the Nike shop on first day of release to get a limited edition, you know, very, very expensive. But how many pairs of custom sneakers do you own as of today, the 5th of January? 2021. Um, I've got to make sure, sure that my, my wife's not listening to this actually, so you might have to beat this out. <laughs> no, no, but um, I've got, um, at, at last count, um, 84 different pairs of shoes. Yeah. Wow. And I can only assume that you also have an aspiration to transform into some form of caterpillar person at some point <laughs> in the future. Um, it is, anyone listening, it is an amazing thing. Do check out Oliver's Instagram um, because it's an incredible thing. Anytime that you see, uh, see 
Oliver live at a festival or, uh, or at a school appearance, he's always got a different and most awesome pair of sneakers on. But you're also um, massively into burgers. And I know that uh, in, in one of your most recent books, um, Natural Born Loser, that burgers featured quite heavily as, as an interest to one of the characters as well. Yeah, look, I think, um, you know, for me, I, I remember like, you know, having my first Happy Meal as a, as a kid and having my first cheeseburger at four years old and it was, it was love at first bite. And so, you know, I knew I was going to be a burger head forever. Uh, <laughs> and so I've been very lucky because, you know, being a nerd um, means that you, you, you love something and it's really cool to be able to, to hang out with, with people who like the same things as you do. So um, in terms of burgers and, and, and sneakers, um, you know, I love hanging out with, with, with the burger community. There is actually a burger grammar community out there. It sounds like a fight club. Yeah, it looked, the, I mean, I've, I've already broken the first rule. I've actually mentioned it. I can't believe it. No, no, I, I, I might as well give them a plug. There were things, it's an app called um, the Burger Collective, which is basically like TripAdvisor um, for, for burgers. And um, they do these really cool events where you get to like try out exclusive burgers um, or, you know, they might have like a, a burger festival and you might get like, invited to this like you know off the cuff session where like the you get to meet the cook and then they, they cook you up some really cool burgers Amazing. um yeah so it's it's really cool and the same thing with, with sneakers too because um you know there's so many cool facebook groups out there that that love sneakers and so that's how i get some inside information into when sneakers are gonna drop like you know so that's how i sort of managed to, to get some of these um these really cool kicks because i think for me like i mean and, and, and mick i mean you know I have to sort of bow down as well because you dress up pretty cool as well when you do off events like you have a really cool sleek jacket and you sort of like you know um you have a really cool suitcase as well which is really nice because i think like it's so cool to be able to rock up in a star wars shirt and say yeah this is my uniform like you know yes. I, I i remember going to like um like back when we were allowed to go on planes and stuff and you know for these like really early um trips to like start a, a week of uh, school visits i'm surrounded by business suits and here i am wearing a very loud glow-in-the-dark green jacket <laughs> with um sh uh, shiny metal-like um shoes i'm like yeah this is what i, I rock up with when i go to school i made the decision when i started doing those uh, those appearances that what i found and I, I wonder if it's the same for you is that by having a, a sort of an outfit which has a you know, little hint of kind of a you know character about it, a little bit of a kind of rock star vibe to it and for me yeah, that's a kind of blue jacket with patches and badges on it and i've got a pair of charlie brown vans that i wear and um, usually a t-shirt with one of my book characters on it it's actually a form of shorthand for the audience because you walk out and suddenly they've got something to look at and they've got something to latch on to and whereas if you just go out and your everyday wear that you might which i think for you is actually it's what you wear on stage but, but for <laughs> me it's that, just yeah, yeah. <laughs> but for me you know that's just an old t-shirt and a pair of cargo pants that i slip around the house in so it, it actually becomes a form of um you know visual storytelling for the audience they, they look at you and go wow okay well this this person in front of me this author doesn't look like some old man sipping coffee at, at a keyboard he actually looks like um some someone that's got a story to tell and, I, and i'll find i'm curious to know if you find the same thing that you know kids will see that I've, i'm wearing a beatles badge and they ask me about beatles or they see that i've got a rubik's cube patch on my sleeve and ask me about rubik's cubing and so immediately you have this lovely sort of fast track um interaction with them do you find the same thing when you're wearing you know your pokemon shirt or or mario shoes or whatever it might be 
Yeah, for sure. I, I think like for me, it actually came from being a teacher actually, because as a, you know, as a teacher, the kids want to know everything about you. And so they want to know like, once they get past the, are you married? Do you have kids? Uh, how old are you? Once again, are you rich? That, <laughs> are, are you rich? That's right. They, um, you know, they, they're fascinated to know what you do in your spare time. And so um, I would decorate my, my teacher's desk with like, toys and, and Pokemon posters and a poster of my favorite um, movie star or, or um, you know, like a rapper or something like that. And so, the, the, yeah, I guess, you know, especially when you go into a place where, you, where the kids don't really know who you are yet or you know, you, you might have kids who, who know who you are, but they, they're quite sort of intrigued to see what you're like in person. Um, having those visual crews are, are, are wonderful because, um, you know, I want to be colorful, I want to be out there, and that, that's kind of my style or, already. But when you're going to do a school visit, I want to look the part as well, because I find that if I rock up being flashy and, and colorful, I tend to act a, a, um, in that sort of persona as well, where, you know, if, if I was going to do like a, a teacher's conference or um, a big sort of, uh, conference if surrounded by adults, I would probably still rock up there in the same thing anyway. Because <laughs> yes, yeah, well, that, that, that does take that does take boldness. I mean, not everyone you, you have to follow through, and I found that as well. That you know, when you walk into a school, it's like walking through the saloon, you know, the swinging saloon <laughs> doors in an old west tavern. Um, and you know you've got to own it you're like okay i'm i'm wearing this and it's my look and i'm going to follow through you can't sort of cower down it, it's, it's an interesting decision though because um I've, I've done conferences and talks for teacher librarians and adult audiences and often go should i shouldn't i wear but you have to follow through you have to go no this is this is my public persona we all want kids to read and i find that like if you can hook a kid in no matter whether it's through a joke or through a voice or through your book if you can hook them into reading your books um, and they have an image of you as their reader. I mean, you know, you basically won them over. So I'm sure you get this a lot. Where you know, you know, when you look out into a, into a classroom or into a festival, you know those kids that are already holding a copy of your book or someone else's book. You know that they're, they're okay. But it, it's when you hear from a teacher or a parent the next day or, or, or a week later when they say, "Oh, my my son or my daughter never reads a book. I can never get them off YouTube." But after seeing you, they said, "Mum or Dad, you have to go out and buy this book." by Oliver or by Mick. I'm sure you get that a lot. It's honestly those ones that really stand out the most to me actually because, um, I mean, my goodness, it is so hard to get a kid to read a book. Like it's, 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 it's way too hard. Like, you know, back in our day, you know, like consoles <laughs> were, were in the living room, um, TVs were in the living room, but you know, in an age of screens and instant entertainment, to get a kid to read a book for enjoyment is, is a tough task. And so I, I tip my hat off um, even though I don't really wear hats because I have spiky hair, but you know, I tip my hat <laughs> off to any any parent or teacher out there wanting to get a kid to read a paper book. But so when you hear stuff like that, you're like, oh wow, that that is so cool. And you know, I've, speaking of which, I've actually had kids uh, basically want to to dress up like me. So I I, I visited a school in Canberra in in September uh, last September. And for book week, he actually rocked up as Oliver Pumbaa. Like he tried to do his <laughs> his hair spiky. Uh, he he rocked up in like a Sonic shirt. Um, and that is, I mean, like that is so cool. I mean, because you know, especially Con Connor in, in Condor, that basically like it's 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 me as a kid. Like you know, it's that kind of persona. And so to see that in real life, to see kids go, oh, I, I can rock up in a Pokemon shirt, and you know, I'm I'm all of a Pokemon, but but secretly I do like Pokemon as well. So I'm just basically myself. So that's really cool. I wonder if uh, you know other authors have that same experience. Well, I'd love um, just in the last couple of minutes before we finish up, I'd love just to just chat a little bit about just your writing process from that from that you know what does an average 
day for you look like when you're excluded when you're not on the talking circuit um you know when there's no burger openings to be to be seen when there's no new sneakers about to drop what what does a day look like for you when you get up in the morning and go okay today i'm dedicating to uh, to working on the on the new manuscript oh, i'm actually doing it right now actually uh, as we speak um you know i'm developing um a series of books and for me I need to visualize what they look like. So I, I go all out with my stick figures. I still draw stick figure comics, um, sketches. Yeah, I just, um, and some of them actually make it um, into the book, actually. So if you look at Brain Freeze, there's a couple of my stick figure sketches that actually made it in. So for me, I, I need to see it first. So I, I just, I spend days just brainstorming, um, you know, random things. I might just write down a couple of jokes. Um, I, I might just sort of jot down things that a character might say and just sort of put them in, into a folder. And this happens for like, you know, a couple of weeks. And then when it comes to actually writing the story, I start breaking them all out and start sort of like kind of, I mean, I, I don't have them up on a wall because the last time I did that, um, I got in trouble because there were too many blue tacks on the wall. And I got, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but I, I sort of scattered them around, around my desk or I, I just shuffle through them through my fold, in my folder. And then I start to think of a starting point and then I start, uh, writing the story. Um, sometimes though, like um, for my, like, you know, for Don't Follow Me, for example, there was no brainstorming. That was just me writing the raw draft from the get-go because I needed to get this story out. And so I wrote a lot of um, Don't Follow Me um, in, in a festival um, in, in, in Dubai and um, I had a lot of spare time on my hands and I was just in the zone. Like I, I literally just smashed out half the, half of the first draft in like a couple of days because I just wanted to get this voice out. And it was, so that was really cool as well. So, um, you know, I guess the beauty of being an author um, or being a writer is that every writer tackles um, each book differently. Um, and so sometimes it could be like a, um, it could be like a visual, it, it could be um, an opening line, it could be a, a character. And so for me, I just sort of, See, see where it goes. But um, I think for me, a lot of it is really spent uh, thinking about the character, spending time with the character, just sometimes drawing some, some notes or drawing some pictures. But essentially, it's just a lot of thinking time. And I think a lot, a lot of people don't, a lot, a lot of uh, non-writers don't know this, but like you really can't measure productivity with like a word count. You know, like, you know, someone might say, oh, you know, um, how was your day? Oh yeah, I spent a couple of hours working on my book. Oh yeah, how many, how many words did you write? Mm. Oh, uh, not many, too many words, but I, I, I think I've done a, a really cool scene or I think I've got the first three chapters down pat or something like that. So it's, it's really hard to sort of capture, but, um, but I trust the process enough to know that it's, it's the best time of the process because no one knows about this project yet or no one really knows about it. So you're allowed to do whatever you want. So it's, it's really cool. And you have that, that freedom at that stage of, of drafting. And it, it's wonderful to hear you talk about that, uh, yeah, just that, that process. Because I think you, you're right. I, I imagine that there are a lot of people that are aspiring writers that think, well, I have to hit X amount of words a day. And if I don't hit, you know, 2,000 words or 4,000 words, then I'm not actually delivering what I need to. But but it is so important, isn't it, as you go to go, well, today was a day where I was actually just thinking about it in the background. Or I wrote a whole chapter that actually didn't work, but had I not written that chapter, I wouldn't have actually got to where the, the narrative needs to go to. So often those what seem like pitfalls in your darkest moments as a writer are actually necessary steps of the writing process. Yeah, spot on. Like I, I always tell kids, it's, it's kind of like, you know, uh, when a, a kettle is boiling and, you know, as it, as it boils, that's when you brainstorm, that's when you jot down ideas, you, you draft and, and you come up with some random things. And then when you're ready to pour 
the, the boiling water and into cups, that's when you actually start writing. So, mm. um, yeah, for, for me, a lot of it is really just um, a, lot, a lot of pre-prep. And, and, and that's how I usually write my, um, my stand-up comedy as well back in the day. Like, I would just jot down, like, a, a line in, in a notebook and then I would drive on the way to the gig thinking about that one line and, and trying to work out what I, I could say and or, you know, working out some other jokes that could be linked to that one line as well. So, yeah. Well, I, for one, cannot wait for the next Oliver Pomervine book to hit the bookshops. <laughs> when can we expect your new book to be available to us? I'm working on the uh, the next uh, structure edit of uh, What About Tower, which is my, my next book coming out. And so hopefully, I mean, you know, um, given with what's been going on with, with um with delays and, and um, uh, book schedules sort of thrown up in the air. Like, I mean, surely by this year, but not exactly, not sure what the date is going to be, but hopefully later, uh, later on in, in this year. And um, working on the next book after that as well. So, um, and so that should be coming out sometime in, in 2022. And it seems that you're, you're incredibly busy. And as you hinted at there, yes, it's been a very, very bizarre 12 months. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a whole lot of ways that we can position the year behind us, <laughs> which was <laughs> the weirdest year ever, the strangest year, a challenging year. Um, and I think all of us as, as writers uh, and as readers as well have, have found it you know, very, very challenging. But I, I love that there's, there's so much optimism, um, both to hear it from yourself, but also I think in the industry and amongst booksellers as well that you know there will continue and will always be an appetite for stories and funny stories uh, like the wonderful ones that you write for us Oliver it's been so amazing chatting to you on behalf of the Words and Nerds podcast today thanks so much thanks for having me on me and a huge thanks to Words and Nerds as well best-selling kids author Oliver Pomervan. Check out his latest book, Brain Freeze, right now. This has been author and illustrator Mick Elliott. You can find me on Instagram at WhatMickSaw and very, very rarely on Twitter at the Mick Elliott. Thanks to Danny V for having me on the Words and Nerds podcast summer series. Keep on reading. <laughs> <laughs>